could just do it that way for the time being and see how that goes. But uh, Isaiah 53 is a very powerful Old Testament passage, and it often gets revisited this time of the year, especially in Christian churches, not necessarily the Jewish synagogues, because that is uh, that is one of the forbidden. They say it's actually it's not forbidden; it's just ignored. It's ignored to the point they forbid it. Uh, Isaiah fifty three references what we call the suffering servant, who we believe to be Christ. In fact, it connects back. If you look back in in chapter fifty two, verse thirteen, it refers to a servant who will prosper. And this would tie the mind back to the Messiah, the the references to chapter 42, 49, 50, this suffering servant of the Lord. And again, like I said, it's not necessarily forbidden, but it is definitely to be ignored. They don't read this in Jewish synagogues anymore. They used to, whenever they would read the Torah, then they would read uh, a collection of prophecies called the Haftarah, and this would be among them. But at some point, in Jewish synagogues, they said, hey, maybe we should pull back on this. Now, your average Jewish believer, uh, not Christian believer, but, but who believed in the God of the Old Testament, they're kind of like Christians today, most of them. They're, that's their thing. Uh, they typically go during, to, to synagogue maybe during Passover, like we have Easter Christians, right? They don't know all of the Old Testament, but... As information began to spread around the world and people began to hear more about this suffering servant who is associated with Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person, Jewish people began to say, maybe we don't want to connect our text to him. And so they stopped reading Isaiah 53. Now, most people, when they read Isaiah 53, You'd think verses 10, 11, and 12 do not exist because it becomes kind of problematic. There's some hard stuff within that text. They'll read verses 1 through 9. Pastors this next week will probably preach on verses 1 through 9 and yet skip verses 10, 11, and 12. Well, I like to dive into the hard stuff sometimes. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin reading in verse 10. But the Lord desired to crush him causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot for him, I'm sorry, I will allot him a portion with the great, and will, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. Now this was written about 400 years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. This was written before that first Christmas in Bethlehem by about 400 to 450 years. And yet it is about this suffering servant, again, who we associate with Jesus, who comes, he suffers, he dies, he is both the root and the shoot of Jesse. Uh, he, has, he is aligned with the, the house of David. And 
In Isaiah, he makes it very clear. It's actually, it's God incarnate who's coming to earth to suffer and die. So if you take nothing else from this message today, I hope you write this down, keep this with you. If you're taking notes, make sure you you include this. It pleased the Lord to die for you. That's the one thing I hope if you take nothing else away from this. It pleased the Lord to die for you. In fact, some uh, translations begin, yet it pleased the Lord instead of the Lord desired. Now, as we get into this this morning, I, I want to uh, point out recently was uh, talking to some other pastors and one of them, uh, he, he admitted someone in his church came to him and said, just one Sunday, could you preach the gospel? Just one Sunday, could you preach the gospel just once? I do not know if there is anything more pitiful than to see a starving animal look up into the eyes of the person who is responsible for their care and protection while they sit at the table gorging themselves as this animal is begging for food. But that's the imagery that came to my mind that day. A sheep, just bones and skin, begging his shepherd for some grain. That's exactly what Ezekiel 34 talks about. You grow fat off the sheep. We live in an era where so few pastors even know what the gospel is. And it doesn't get preached enough. Now, for myself, you all hopefully know this, that I try every message, no matter the topic, no matter the text, to bring some assurance of the gospel into that sermon. I may not do it perfectly. I may not do it smoothly. And to be frank, I probably don't do it as consistently as consistently as I like to think that I do, but I try. But if you were to go to your average professing Christian and say, could you tell me what the gospel is? Some have no clue because their pastor hasn't given it to them. And it's disgusting to me. It really gets, <laughs> they say it grinds my gears. <laughs> it really grinds my gears. You go to some Christians, you say, what's the gospel? And they might say, well, you have no other gods before him. Don't create any other graven images. Something about honor your father and mother. That's the Ten Commandments. It's not the gospel. Well, what's the gospel then? Well, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. No, that's the great commandment. What's the gospel? Well, just be a good person. No, that is again, not the gospel. The gospel penetrates every part of your Bible. It is The problem is so few people know their Bible to know what the gospel truly is. But it is a necessity for the believer in Christ. The Scottish preacher Alistair Begg, some of you who come on Wednesday nights, you've heard this recently. He says it this way, In the Old Testament he's predicted, in the Gospels he is revealed, in Acts he is preached, in the Epistles he is explained, and in Revelation he is expected. The Gospel is that suffering servant who died on a cross for your sin and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel that Jesus Christ, God himself, died taking the weight of our sin upon himself 
on the cross and rose from the grave. We began this little uh, class on Wednesdays taking from the Old Testament to Jesus, taking, looking at our Old Testament and asking that question, how do we get to the gospel from this passage? And not everything in the Old Testament is an automatic hyperlink to Jesus, but everything is a thread in the tapestry that is woven to give us the gospel of God. It's easy to find Jesus in Hosea 3 or Isaiah 53 or or passages like that, or Psalm 23. Harder to find him in Esther whenever Haman's being hanged, right? But that doesn't mean he's not there. That doesn't mean there's not a thread that ties us to a greater truth. And from this pulpit, I hope and pray that every Sunday in some way you are given the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today within this text, we look and we see the three key roles that Jesus fulfills in this 450-year prophecy now almost 2,500 years from us. The, the sacrifice for our sins, the servant who satisfies the Father's wrath, and the Savior who intercedes on our behalf. Those are the three points this morning if, if you're taking notes. Now we begin in verse 10, the sacrifice. It says, But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. The Lord desired, the Hebrew word hafetz, and it can be translated desired or pleased. And like I said, some translations say it pleased the Lord. This doesn't mean he's getting some sick pleasure out of watching a man be beaten and tortured and crucified. It doesn't mean he's sitting up there clapping his hands. Yeah, drive those nails. He's not, no, he's not doing that. That's not what it means. It's not pleasure in the sense that we typically think of pleasure. Another way that we might read it is it was the will of the Lord, or it was the right thing to do. He understood it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't just the best option, it was the only option to crush him, causing him grief. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, like Jesus is often called, he did not deserve to die yet he submitted himself to death. We go back to Matthew 26, 39. It reads, He went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It was the will of the Father that he die. It pleased the Lord. It was the only option that the Son, that God himself, be put to death. And Jesus understood this. He knew this truth. Jesus understood his purpose from the moment he was born and placed in that manger. He knew that ahead of him there was a divine call and a divinely timed incident for his time on earth to end. He was both fully God and fully man, and it was only the blood of God that could do what God intended to have happen that day on Calvary's hill. He said in the Gospel of John, Now my soul has become troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. This had been God's plan since the point of creation, since the fall, since the Garden of Eden, when God told that snake, who tricked the woman into into eating that fruit and her husband ate it as well, 
He said to the snake, I will make enemies of you and the woman and your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that took place at the cross. Paul draws this connection. The apostle Paul draws this connection. Romans 5.17, he says, For if by the offense of the one, speaking of Adam, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. It pleased God because God knew the only thing pure enough, the only thing righteous enough, the only thing good enough to save us from our sins, our rebellion, was His own precious, holy, pure, righteous blood. It pleased Him because that was His plan for the salvation of mankind, that there be a sacrifice worthy to atone for their rebellion, their sin. Not just the sin of Adam, but the sin that has infected mankind since Adam. Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Yes, those godless men made their choice. But God knew the choices they would make. He factored that in for the right time for it to happen. He knew the right moment to send His Son, and He knew the right place and the right time for that ultimate sacrifice right outside the city of Jerusalem. Almost 2,000 years ago. Isaiah continues, it says, If He renders Himself as a guilt offering, He will see His offspring. When Isaiah says, He renders Himself, He's making it clear that it was God and along with God, God the Son, who was the architect of this suffering. It was their design, His design. He knew what needed to be done. He knew what needed to happen for it to be carried out. So He made Himself a guilt offering. Now the guilt offering is something, we see it happen in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law, what's fascinating about this particular sacrifice is that it covers not just the intentional sins, but the unintentional sins. In other words, all sin was covered under this sacrifice. There were different types of guilt offerings, but probably the most common we see in Leviticus 6, verse 6, Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your assessment as a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. The guilt offering was done so that the person who had committed the sins would be absolved of their sins before a righteous and holy God. It does not mean they would not have to deal with the earthly consequences of their sin. We see that even today. You may be forgiven by Christ, but if you murdered someone, that person's still dead. If you stole something from that person, you may still go to jail, but you are absolved before a holy God. God says the same thing to the Jewish people in Leviticus 5.17. If a person sins and does any of the things the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, he's still guilty and shall bear his punishment. As I said, that's true with us. But yet there is that sacrifice. 
There is that atoning blood. One commentator said it could very well be called instead of a, a, a guilt offering, but a satisfaction offering because it satisfies God's wrath. With that, what that suffering servant, what Christ did on the cross, was not affirming your sins. He wasn't condoning your sins. He wasn't sweeping them under the rug so you don't ever have to think about them again. But what he, do, what he was doing was making, uh, making you right before the Father, averting the wrath for the sin that we deserve, and placing it upon himself. The things we deserve were placed on him on the cross. And yet Isaiah says he will see his offspring. Now at first glance, many things like this, as I said at the very beginning of this message, some of these things we read in the Old Testament, we look at them and we go, hmm, okay, turn the page. right? We don't dig into it. We don't try to understand it. Because what could that possibly mean? But if we understand this in context, it is one of the most beautiful truths of Scripture. If you look back up the page of your Bible to verse 6, Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. In other words, in our sin, we have strayed like sheep. We've gone our own way. But through the blood of this sacrifice, of this this God-man, we may have strayed like sheep, but we will return as children. As those who are part of God's household. Again, the Apostle Paul draws a line for us, connecting the dots in his letter to the Galatians. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And further down that page, he says, So we too, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because of the sacrifice, we are treated as offspring, not lost, straying children, but a member of His household, a member of God's home. Isaiah goes on in verse 10, he says, He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, if we were to read this without the context of the New Testament, we might be kind of confused and do a little double take here. In fact, you might scratch your head. He'll prolong his days? That doesn't seem to fit. That doesn't make sense. How? We just got 10 verses about this guy dying and being struck down. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. We're going to go back to this verse a little bit later. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. By his wounds we're healed. Doesn't sound like that's something you're just going to get up and walk away from. Verse 7, it refers to him as a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah literally says in verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. How else do you understand that? But he's going to die. Yet somehow this servant is going to come back from that. His days are to be prolonged? The Old Testament reader might have thought of Job who once said, before I go and I shall not return to 
the land of darkness and deep shadow. He's talking about his death. The idea of the resurrection, while it's obviously clear here in Isaiah, many did not ascribe to that fact. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you hear about this this sect called the Sadducees. And as uh, one of my professors, Dave Bennett, taught me to uh, remember what they were about, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. Yet this sacrifice, this suffering servant, will have his days prolonged. He's going to be awarded or rewarded with a resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. His kingdom will never end. It will never cease to prosper. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to King David. Not, it, he wasn't talking about Solomon, but a later offspring. When he said, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's not talking about the Jewish temple. God in his sovereignty knows that temple is going to be torn down. He knows that it's going to be torn down a couple of times, three times. He's talking about the house, the holy temple of the Holy Spirit that exists even now within this room. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It pleased the Lord to be that sacrifice that we may be made right with Him. The servant, we look at Him as the servant, Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. This anguish of his soul is so visible at the cross. But it started before the cross. It started that night in the garden when Jesus was praying. In fact, it was so intense. Luke tells us this. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now you may look in your footnotes and you may see that Some manuscripts of Luke didn't include that story, but that's not to say that it didn't happen. Mark also agrees Jesus was greatly troubled. He says, He took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And Matthew agrees almost word for word with Mark and Luke as well. Whether or not there was an angel, whether or not there were drops of sweat like blood, the original, in, the, in the original text is completely moot. What we understand is Jesus felt this very real trouble. The Hebrew word is amal, and it actually can be better translated misery. That he felt this misery within himself. And that seems contradictory. If it pleased him to do this, shouldn't he be walking towards the cross? Let's go ahead and get it over with, guys. It's... As soon as this is done, there's great things coming. So verse 10 said, right? Please the Lord. He desired it. But if we truly understand this, if we haven't gotten it already, that's not the type of pleasure we're talking about. It was the understanding that this is what must be done. This is what has to happen. God actually sets this precedent back in Genesis 3 when he sacrificed animals to cover their sin when he killed animals and gave them clothing made of sin that covered their shame. And Jesus understands this. 
Why he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If Jesus truly is that suffering servant, we have to ask, who is he serving? In the garden, we see it made crystal clear, not himself, not his flesh, not his humanity, but his divinity. He is serving the father, not my will, but yours. And because of his strength to pray it in the garden, we are capable of praying, not my will for my life, Father God, but your will be done. Why Isaiah goes on to say in verse 11, he says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. By his knowledge, by knowing who he is, he will justify the many. The ESV translation says, He will make many to be accounted righteous. He will make us right before God. In his knowledge, in knowing what lies before him, knowing, like I said a moment ago, from the point of his birth, what his purpose on earth was, where he was destined to die. Jesus would know this. And he goes through with it. And as he does, he justifies, he declares us, the many, righteous before Almighty God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Apostle John in 1 John 2.20, he says it this way, He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now, propitiation's a fun word. How many of you have used that this past week? Right? Not, it's not something that really gets used often in the English language. In fact, even in Scripture, it only happens twice, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. But it means to appease someone, to satisfy someone else. And actually, if, if I'm being honest, I think the Greek is easier than the English here. The Greek word, hylosmos. And it's only used in 1 John 2, 2 and 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, He appeased God as He justified me. As He justified you. He justifies us. Paul would say in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace in which we stand and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. How does He do this? Just by His knowledge of these events? No. Verse concludes, verse 11, very end, He says, For He will bear their wrongdoing." Points us again back to verse 5. He's pierced for our offenses. He's crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment, the punishment for our well-being was laid upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. In other words, everything we deserved was thrust upon Him. He took it upon Himself when He died. Peter makes the same connection. He says, he himself brought our sins in his body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. 
And I want to clarify, he's very specifically here talking about a spiritual healing, a cleansing of our unrighteousness. But he also does make a way for our physical healing. And that's in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. It was our sicknesses that he himself bore, our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assume that he'd been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. By his wounds, we are healed eternally. By his death and his affliction, we may be healed physically according to God's sovereignty. This proves again that it was the Lord's plan, that it it pleased him, that he desired this, that in spite of the pain, in spite of the suffering, he desired to be the sacrifice we needed in order to be made righteous before God the Father. Finally, we see him as the Savior. As verse 12 begins, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong. This suffering servant is given the highest of honors and the greatest of titles. The wording actually here is very similar to that of someone who has conquered who has won a great battle. His reward, if you read it like this, his reward from battle is a portion and a dividing of the plunder. But we're going to break it down just a little bit. He will be allotted a portion with the great. It'd be, it would call to mind the, the previous words of Isaiah in chapter 52. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Paul, of course, is going to When he writes to the church at Philippi, he's going to again connect the dots for us. For this reason, God, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Of course, the writer of Hebrews will compare the superiority of the Son to that of Even the angels, he says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have fathered you. Again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Angels are fine, they serve their purpose, but they are not the son. They're not God, they're not divine. He is greater than them. He alone as Savior is worthy of our praise. God has allotted him a portion with the great. That word great, it's a kind of a pesky word in in Hebrew. It's kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Princess Bride, the character Inigo Montoya. He has this phrase, he says, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Great here is the Hebrew word rav. And the tense that's used here is ravim. It's actually used to mean many. And it refers to those in this tense It's those whom the servant is designed to save. In other words, those whom he saves are his spoils. We are his reward. But he also is rewarded in the fact that he enjoys us. He enjoys our worship. He rejoices in the spoils as we rejoice in him. Christ doesn't just rejoice for his own sake, but for ours, because he gives us the fruit of his victory, his victory over death, 
His victory over the world. His victory over the devil. His victory over hell itself. And his victory is now our victory when we are in him. He will divide the plunder with the strong. Those who share in the victory of Christ, those who who have submitted their lives to him, will one day reign with him. Revelation 20 makes this very clear, that if you have given your life to Christ, you have have a place in his earthly kingdom during his thousand-year reign. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, the devil's thrown to the lake of fire. Death and Hades are thrown to the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But that's not you. If, if you have faith in this suffering servant, this sacrifice of God, this Savior we call Jesus. Verse 12 continues, but he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. He pours out his life in order for us to have everlasting life. He tells his disciples in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He poured out his life that we might have a life which is the light of mankind. That is why he came. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it back. And during his life, Isaiah says he was counted with wrongdoers. That doesn't mean he was a wrongdoer. That doesn't mean that that he sinned or anything like that. It means he identified with the sinner. It means he identified with those who did wrong, with those who were in need of salvation. He was mocked by the Pharisees and he condemns them. He says, In Luke, Luke 7, 33, For John the Baptist has come, neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a heavy drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, nobody can win with you guys. And so he rebukes them. Because he's trying to go to the sick who need a doctor. He's trying to go to those who are in need of saving. And ultimately, he's going to be crucified between two thieves on Calvary's hill, hanging between them as if he were a criminal himself. And even then, one of the thieves looks at him and says, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus comes to earth as a baby. He dies on a Roman cross so that he may die for the most ruthless, most vile of sinners, even to die beside them in order that those from the least to the worst of sinners might be saved. And that even they, even the most heinous of criminals, could possibly enjoy eternity with him. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, the trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, 
among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ, might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul was a sinner. Paul was a Jewish zealot. He condoned the stoning of Stephen, who was an up-and-coming guy who might have done great things for God. And yet he dies as the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Paul would go and take men and women, children, and drag them from their homes out into the street. And he says he would try to make them blaspheme. He would try to make them rebuke Christ, deny Christ, just so he could throw them in jail. He is not a man you'd want to wrong. For all the sins and all the things Paul says, that he, all the bad things that he does, or still does, even as a Christian, in Romans 7, he talks about covetousness and, and sins he struggled with. The one thing about the Apostle Paul I would never want to be on the other side of is his wrath, his anger. Paul had a bad temper. Even, even by some called a murderer. And yet, In Acts chapter 9, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ, with the resurrected Savior. And something within that man changes to the point the Corinthian church thought he was timid. They spoke of his timidity. He wasn't that bad of a guy. Oh, he talks tough in his letters, but when he comes, he's very gentle. That's the, that's the transforming power of Jesus Christ in a person's life. That's what he's talking about. That's how a person goes from being a bloodthirsty religious zealot to a timid preacher and teacher of Scripture. It only happens through this Savior. Verse 12 continues, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. He took that anger and that wrath of the Apostle Paul, that mercilessness, and he bore it on that cross. In the same way he took your anger, your pride, your bitterness, your lust, your greed, your envy, your hate, your malice, your shameful sins we dare not even touch on in the sanctuary of a church. He took them all and he bore them on his body and in his body on that ugly Roman torture tool made out of two planks of wood those three nails and that crown of thorns. He took your sin so that you no longer have to have it in your life. When we've accepted that, when we believe that, it reaches our heart and we begin to understand that because of who he is, that even though he died, death could not hold him. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding, That even if we do sin, and when we do continue sinning, he speaks on our behalf within the throne room of heaven. Comparing Jesus to the Jewish priests, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He will always intercede for the wrongdoer who chooses him. We will have sin. We will have struggle. 
but it is only through Christ that we have this salvation, this hope of heaven. That's the gospel's power in your life, that Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, died on a cross as an atonement for our sins, not just yours, not just mine, for all of ours. And that God raised him on the third day and he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for any who believe in him. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. That's the truth. That's the power of the gospel. That's why I get fired up about it. That's why it matters. It doesn't just matter on Sunday. It matters every day. And we often have to hear it again and again and again and be reminded not just of, of what happened, but what it does. Please, God, to be our Savior, to become a sacrifice for our sins, that he may be that suffering servant who paves that narrow path into eternity with himself. I'm going to move to close. But if you're here or you're watching online and you've never made a decision to follow Christ, or maybe you have and you just really find it hard to have the strength to submit to him lately, we'd love, we would love to pray with you. We'd have our prayer team come forward to pray for you. Easter is a week away, and this kind of feels like an Easter sermon. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have any idea what I'm preaching on next week. But at the core... I know it's going to have something to do with the gospel. There's going to be the same truth within that sermon as there is in this one. But in some way, hopefully, I can point you to the cross and to the empty tomb. The message that Jesus died for your sins to make you right before God and he rose again and because he's not just some dead teacher. Because he rose again, he's a living God. He has the power to transform our lives. He may not heal every problem. He may not fix every broken thing. He may not pay every bill, but you will never face anything alone when you have given your life to him. You'll have in your corner the Savior, the servant, the sacrifice that is God. You know what's amazing about this, and I've said this before, but The joy of Christianity is that it's not that when you die, you get to go be with Jesus. That's our hope. That's that's a great thing. The joy of Christianity is that Jesus comes to be with you. That the Holy Spirit dwells within you. That he's in our lives now. That we have eternity with him starting now. That's the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Again, if you would like prayer or you'd like to commit your life to Christ, we'd be happy to pray with you. Father God, right now, I believe there may be someone here or someone watching online, they have not made that full commitment to Christ. And I would just say this, grab somebody. Ask them to pray with you. That they grab someone and and just say, hey, I'm struggling in my faith. Or I don't even have faith, but I want it. 
I want to believe in Jesus. Lord, that day, today, they make that choice to follow you and you begin to change them. You begin to radically shape them more and more like your son. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Pray you're glorified through it all, Lord. Amen.